You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. From Psalm 88. So if you get a chance, you can get out your phones if you have your Bible app on your phone or if you have your actual Bible, you can open that up to Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Are your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. They cults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, we are looking at a passage we actually looked at about two and a half years ago as a church because I thought it fit in well with where we've been and where we're going as a church. So if you're just joining us this morning, uh, especially if you're new, first of all, welcome. Second of all, we're in a series called Walking with God, and we're asking the question, what does it look like to walk with God in different areas of our life? So some of the things that we've hit so far are, uh, you know, walking with God just in general, that God wants to be a part of our lives. We looked at that. We've looked together at what it looks like to walk with God in prayer, what it looks like to walk with God as we read the Bible and, and hear his word to us uh, in, in scripture. Uh, you know, Joe hit on what it looks like to walk with God in pain and suffering in our lives. And we may begin to get the idea that, okay, if I kind of get this walk with God right, like if I read my Bible and pray and go to church and do the right things, then everything in my life is going to turn out well for me. Uh, and then we hear from this guy named Haman and realize, no, nothing could be further from the truth. Our walk with God does not remove the reality that darkness, sometimes heavy darkness is a part of our lives, but even in the midst of dark seasons that God has us in, he is still moving and working and using those circumstances ultimately for our good. And so I invite you this morning to really pray uh, along with me to, to prepare your own soul 
uh, as this is one of the most powerful psalms, I think, in, in the Bible. And so would you bow your heads and let's, let's pray and invite God to meet us this morning. Lord, these are, these are heavy words. There's a level of honesty in this psalm that maybe we're not comfortable with. Many of us in this room, when we think about God, we feel like we've got to present ourselves a certain way. What does it look like to walk with you, God, when it seems like hope is diminished? Everything in life is heavy and difficult. What does it look like to walk with you, God, in the midst of darkness? I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, speak to us in this room this morning. Man, some, maybe you're just in a generally difficult time, and this word could be of great encouragement to, to them. There are others that are in a low place right now. And I pray that these words by Haman would lift them out of, out of that low place. So Spirit of God, would you minister to your people this morning, I ask, in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. So if you've got like kids in preschool kind of age classes, maybe you've seen this sort of exercise that they do sometimes. It's an exercise called, which one is not like the rest? So there will be a picture of like Daniel Tiger or Peppa Pig or something, and they're engaging in some activity, and there's like four or five pictures, but, but one of the pictures has something different, and you're supposed to note, okay, which one of these Daniel Tigers is different from the other one? Which one is not like the rest. As we look at Psalm 88, what we are seeing is a psalm that is not like the rest. And it's not like the rest, not because it has someone in a low, difficult, dark place. Uh, This psalm is not unique because it expresses grief, because it expresses pain, uh, because it even expresses some anger towards God. That's not what makes this psalm unique. That's something you regularly read about uh, through the uh, dozens of psalms that are present in the Bible. This one is different because in the expression of grief, there is no expression of hope. Uh, There is no confidence that the writer has that that God will act. So in these other instances of this, but I will see your steadfast, I'm in this dark place, I'm in this difficult place, but I will hope in you. But I will see your steadfast love. Uh, But I will trust in you. This psalm offers no such hope. So it's a fair question then to ask, well, geez, then why is this one in the Bible? Um, Was there perhaps like, some kind of miscue on the editor's desk. Uh, the, the writer was just in a really low place and they should have left this one out. Like, why is this psalm that has no really obvious expression of hope here in the Bible? Is this psalm meant to be here? This psalm is indeed meant to be here. And it is meant for people who are in a prolonged season of difficulty and darkness. Sometimes when you're in a really dark place, the quick just, yeah, but just trust God. Yeah, but he works all things together for the good. Yeah, but it's all gonna, you know, you look on the bright side. Like a quick little word of encouragement isn't actually all that helpful. Helpful. Uh, sometimes we are in seasons of darkness that are long, that seem hopeless, and don't have an immediate quick fix. That's the type of season that this psalm is meant to address. 
That's the type of season the psalm is meant to address. Deep, unresolved, in prayer and through his word and other categories. What's it look like to walk with God in seasons like that? What's it look like to walk with God when darkness surrounds us? What might God be doing in the midst of the dark? Spend our time together sort of with two sections almost that I first want to look just at Haman's experience. I want to look at some of the things he says and some of the things that he's going through and just explore that with you together. And then I want to simply offer some proposals. These aren't definite answers for what God is doing in the darkness, but at the very least, uh, what what I want to offer are some things that that this psalm might help us with, Uh, some things that this psalm will teach us as we go through long, dark seasons uh, that might, in fact, show us what God is up to in the midst of it. So let's begin together by looking at Haman's experience. And I want to look at his experience uh, because oftentimes, as we said at the beginning, We can be in a very dark place in our lives, and we show up at a setting like this at church, and we look around, everybody has like, you know, a reasonably happy face on, and we think to ourselves, I'm the only one going through this. There is no one else, especially there can't be anyone else who's faithfully walking with God that's going through a difficult season like this. One of the most... um, difficult things that we could experience is to go through a heavy season like this and feel like we're alone in it. What Haman's experience will show us is that in your season of darkness, in your struggle with depression, anxiety, hopelessness, first and foremost, you are not alone in it. You have safe company, not just in church, you have safe company on the pages of inspired scripture. So let's look together at this author's experience. Again, his name is Haman. Uh, I I noted when we first went through this, not He-Man, okay, the 1980s cartoon character with the bangs. That is a different, uh, that's a different character. This is is Haman. And uh, he is in a group of writers in the Psalms called the Korites. They were responsible for writing in the Bible. This beautiful language uh, describing God, describing praise, describing worship in the Bible. This Psalm obviously is a little bit different from that. It's been uh, described as the psalm to describe the dark night of the soul. And uh, he, he concludes this psalm by saying, like, this is how low it's got. He basically says, all my friends have left me. Darkness is my only friend. Now let's look at some of the experiences that led him to that. What was his darkness like? What was it like for, ha- for Haman to be in this experience of darkness? First of all, he describes some anxiety. In verse 3, he says, my soul is full of troubles. So for Haman, it's not just that his life is full of troubles, though that's true. His soul is full of them. So the outside burdens of his life have moved inside of his consciousness and now dominate his mind. Uh, This is perhaps a description of crippling anxiety, maybe even panic attacks. He has racing thoughts. Uh, He has perhaps an elevated blood pressure, a feeling like the world is closing in on him. uh, Haman doesn't just say, my life is difficult, but the difficulties of my life have moved into my soul, and my soul is full of troubles. Have you ever been there before? where just crippling thoughts, where you can barely function and barely move because of the troubles that overwhelm your mind. If you have, you're not alone. 
Haman walked with God in the midst of his anxiety. What about depression? This is apparent all throughout the psalm. Uh, Depression often manifests itself with feelings of hopelessness, feelings of despair. Uh, If you've been in a season of depression, it sort of sucks the life and motivation for living right out of you. So in verse four, he says, he's like a man who has no strength. Everything feels dull. Everything feels pointless. Finding the motivation to do anything is difficult. And his depression has left him of a feeling of being brought to to a near place of death. He says in verse three, my life is near Sheol. That's in the Bible, the realm of the dead. In verse four, he says, I'm like one who lies in the grave. So to summarize Haman's depression, he's, he's sort of trying to identify himself with someone. And maybe Haman sees people in his life that are happy, that things are going well for them. They've, they've got smiles on their faces. That's like one group of people. And then he thinks about people who are in the grave. They're dead. And what Haman is saying is like, I feel like under my current state, I can relate better them. That's the second experience we see here. What about uh, another one? Loneliness. One of the most painful experiences that a human being can go through is being completely alone, having no one. Verse eight, you have caused all my companions to shun me. In other words, all my friends are gone. Verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. So perhaps uh, poetically, Haman's describing a spouse uh, that has stepped out of his life, that's, that's no longer there, that has shunned him. And then if that weren't bad enough, the sort of uh, horizontal relationships in his life where he feels alone, as he looks upward to God, he describes the same experience. He says, verse five, I am like one you remembered no more. Verse 14, why? Why, God, do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Haman is saying, hey, God, all my friends are gone. Uh, and I'm looking for you, but it feels like my prayers are just vanishing into the air. Even it feels like you, my God, have abandoned me. Have you ever felt that way? Completely alone, completely on your own. If you have, you're not alone in that experience. Haman walked with God in the midst of it. Uh, Another area of difficulty that I see Haman expressing here is uh, a season where he can't catch a break. Have you ever been there? Or it's just one thing after another, after another. So he says in verse seven, you overwhelm me with your waves. What are, what's true of waves? At least two things. One, waves, at least, uh, you know, maybe you've experienced this, being, been to the beach. Waves can knock you to the ground like you're weightless. Waves can knock the wind right out of your lungs. Waves can pin you down to the ocean floor. But the other thing about waves is that life is that it's just one thing after another thing after another thing. He's uh, describing an experience in which he simply cannot catch a break. And then the final experience that I want to look at with Haman is that in the midst of uh, this very difficult season, it leaves him with a feeling of being hopeless and trapped. Again, what makes this psalm unique is not just that it expresses a dark time. What makes it unique is that there's no confidence or reassurance that everything is going to be okay. Verse eight, I am shut in and I cannot escape. I am trapped here, Haman says. Verse 15, I am helpless. So this broad, dark night of the soul that shows up in anxiety, depression, loneliness, feeling like he just can't catch a break, that feels like that's all that there's ever going to be. 
He's stuck there, trapped there, and offers us, once again, no expression of hope that anything is going to get better. Now, that's his experience. And before we look at what we might learn from his experience, there is a deeper, even more difficult reality for us to grapple with in his experience, and that is this. What is God's responsibility in all of this? How is God involved in Haman's darkness? What is his role? This is not a very popular observation out of this psalm, but not only does Haman grieve his experience in prayer, he also shows us God's responsibility in it. So what makes this this psalm hard to comprehend is not just that Haman is going through a hard time. He seems to indicate all of this hard time is coming from God himself. Listen to this list of accusations that ended up in your Bible from Haman to God. Verse six, you have put me in the depths of the pit. Verse seven, your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with your waves. Verse eight, you have caused my companions to shun me. Verse 16, your deadly assaults assault and destroy me. If nothing else that you take away from this morning is this, is that you do not always have to pray pretty prayers. This is not a pretty prayer that Haman is offering up. He is expressing the full weight of what he feels towards God. He is even expressing, is just caught up in like the fog of depression uh, and that really at the end of the day, God is not involved in this at all. None of this is from God. Uh, Let's be reminded perhaps of the story of Job. What was God's role in the story of Job? Unfortunate circumstances detached from God, uh, God's hand didn't just show up in Job's life. Satan comes making an accusation uh, against, jo- uh, against humanity. Basically, what Satan's accusation is, there's nobody that serves God just for God. And uh, what does is, what is God do in that moment? He volunteers Job for a season of pain and suffering. And I realize that brings us to perhaps some difficult philosophical and theological questions. How is God involved in the suffering in my life that we're not going to fully answer this morning? What I simply want us to recognize is that God is not absent in this dark night of the soul. Haman is not wrong when he says that, that all of these circumstances, God, are somehow involved with you bringing them about in my life. So we've looked at Haman's dark night of the soul. We've described a little bit of his experience. What then might we learn? What might we pull from Haman's experience for us to grapple uh, with darkness in our own lives? I want to look at four distinct areas that I think are helpful for us as we journey through similar seasons. What, is, what does this teach us about walking with God in the midst of darkness? I think the first thing that this helps us with is that it sets our expectations as we walk with God. Our expectations, what we ought to expect of a life with God are so important because many of us come to a life with God with the wrong set of expectations. We think once again, if I pray, read my Bible and do the right thing, all will go well with me. Haman shows us that is not the case. In fact, when we look at the rest of the globe and when we look at church history as a whole, not the norm. Things going really well for God's people is the exception, not the norm. Listen to how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 4.12. I love this. Uh, not, Not what it means for us, but just the way Peter is so blunt with it. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So 
for us as I think Americans, modern people, where we have just a lot of advancement and comforts in our lives, and especially for those of us who are young, we come to a walk with God with the expectation that what is normal is ease and comfort, and what is the outlier, the strange thing is suffering. Peter's saying, no, 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 you should be surprised if things are going really well for you. That's the outlier. The norm is that you will walk through seasons of fiery trials. And the reason why we have to grapple with our expectations is because our expectations of a walk with God will determine our experience of a walk with God. If we have the wrong expectations of what it means to walk with God, uh, when things we weren't expecting come to us, it will cause us to call call everything into question. So an example of how your expectations determine your experience. I think this is so true in the case of In-N-Out Burger. How many in the room have been to In-N-Out Burger in here? Okay, this is the most controversial fast food restaurant because uh, people really debate over it, not actually, in my opinion, because of the food itself, uh, but, but because how expectations are set up for it. So if you talk to meal, the best thing you'll ever eat. Uh, are any of you from California in, in the room? We've got some California people here. Maybe this has not been your experience, but when I talk to California people, they set the bar for In-N-Out Burger so high. People not from California go there and they'll have it. They're like, you know, maybe they'll say something like, uh, it's basically just McDonald's. Like, what's, what's the big deal about In-N-Out Burger? Now, if you heard someone talking to you about expectations so high, but if you gain perspective, you're immediately going to be disappointed because they've set the expectations so high. But if you talk to someone that's just like, oh yeah, it's terrible, they're going to think, wow, this is actually really good. This is pretty good. The food is the same. How you were prepared to experience it determines your experience, right? So in this life of walking with God, if we have this expectation that if I do the right things, make the right moves, everything will work out well for me, our experience will be devastating. But if we understand, hey, I'm following in the footsteps of a suffering Savior, and he calls me to take up my cross and follow him, if I have those expectations out of the gate, then when those seasons of suffering come, I'll be far more prepared to experience of them. And so if if this psalm does nothing else uh, this morning, we can simply acknowledge that it sets our expectations for our walk with God. Uh, I think another thing that this psalm shows us is that God will often use darkness to create in us a particular type of prayer. It's the most important prayer you'll actually ever pray this side of eternity. He, he uses seasons of darkness to create in us a desperate cry. There are different kinds of prayers in the Bible. Prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of praise, prayers of petition. What we see in the opening verse, I pray every single one of you, at least at some point in your life, are brought to pray. It's a prayer of desperation. It's a cry of desperation from a helpless person to a good God. Verse one, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry. I cry to you day and night. And this type of prayer is then repeated at several points throughout the passage. What I need you to hear this morning is that being in a position to pray this kind of prayer could possibly be the best thing for you. Speaking of expectations, when my youngest daughter, Ava, was brought into the world, she did not 
perhaps a little bit of blue, some purple throughout her body. And so what I saw the nursing staff do at that moment was take this tiny little like seven pound baby and they are poking and prodding and pressing. And if you knew nothing about what was happening in that moment, you'd think these are the most cruel people in the world. Like they're just, I mean, honestly abusing this, this child. She's already having a hard time. She's come out a little bit purple. Uh, why are they doing this to all of her? But if you rightly understood that, that what's needed in that moment uh, is, is a cry. And so what they're doing through this pain, through this difficulty, is helping this baby be brought to a place where it lets out a cry, because a cry means the baby's alive. A cry means the baby is breathing. For a follower of Jesus, sometimes what we need done in our lives is to be brought to a place of such desperate desperation where we are left to only do one thing, to cry out to God for help from the pit of desperation. But don't despise that kind of prayer because if you're praying that kind of prayer, it means you're alive. It means you are spiritually alive. Sometimes God is going to make us uncomfortable, even hurt deeply, because that's what it's gonna take for you to realize your desperate need of him. A cry for a Christian means that you have God working in your life, that you're alive. The verse one type of prayer does not say, God, my friend, God, my consultant, God, my butler. It says, God, my savior. And being brought to a place in your life where you pray, God, my savior, can be one of the best things for you simply because self-sufficient people do not need saviors. People who can handle life perfectly fine on their own don't need crucified messiahs uh, dying on their behalf. Desperate people, people in the pit of despair need saviors. And sometimes God will bring us to that place so that we can stop relying on our self-sufficiency and fully collapse. People do not make it into the kingdom of God. As Jesus is giving his inaugural address as to what the kingdom of heaven is like, he talks about the kind of people who get to come into the kingdom of heaven. Not blessed are the self-sufficient, blessed are the strong and powerful, blessed are those who have it all together, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are reviled and forsaken and persecuted for my sake. Why does Jesus say blessed are such people? because to such people belong the kingdom of heaven. And so sometimes God will allow circumstances like these into our lives so that we can see our desperate need of him. As C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers in our pleasures, he speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Your desperate cry may seem like a sign of death, but in the kingdom of God, it's a sign that you're alive, that you're breathing, and that you recognize your need uh, for a savior. Number three, what a dark night of the soul will do for us is show us in honesty what's truly in our heart. A dark time will show us what's truly in our heart. And Tim Keller makes this very important observation about Psalm 88. He says that uh, it's, it's important, there's an important connection between Psalm 88 and what happens with Job. Uh, so Satan comes and his accusation to God is essentially, there's no one in the world as it, when it comes to God that serves God just for God's sake. 
they basically will only serve you, God, if you are in turn serving them. You are simply a means to an end for people. If you take away comforts, if you allow there to be pain, well, then people will stop serving you because you're not worthy of it just in and of yourself. That's the essence of what's going on there. Now, in Psalm 88, Satan's accusation falls flat because even in Haman's darkness, he's still praying. He's still seeking God. He's still even seeking to serve God, even though it doesn't seem like God is serving him. In fact, as we've mentioned already in this psalm, it doesn't seem like God is doing anything at all. And what he's revealing to Haman, Haman does not serve God simply because in doing so, things will turn out well for him. He's doing it just for God's sake. How many of us in a dark season, when we ought to lift our cry to God and seek him for comfort, will instead quickly turn to some substance, internet pornography, Uh, some quick fix that just helps us in the midst of our pain rather than saying, God, even in the midst of my pain, I will look to you and serve you. Even if you are not serving me, I will consent you to serve you, not because of what you do for me, but simply because you're worthy. This this type of experience that Haman is going through reveals the, the purest form of worship. So maybe you've heard me before talk to you about one of the most important people in my life. He's a man named Pastor Dave Rutledge. He uh, was a pastor for a number of years. God gripped him for the drug epidemic that was going on. And so he uh, took over a program for drug-addicted young men uh, and uh, served in that ministry for a number of years. I was brought to that program when I had my substance abuse issues, and he was one of the first people that I heard the gospel from to ministry. Uh, Later, as the church was just getting started, he was a great encouragement to me. He even officiated my wedding, so someone profoundly important in my life. And uh, he wasn't one of us buttoned-down, reformed worshipers, okay? Like any time a worship service was going on, even if everyone else was being very stoic and proper, you could just hear from the back shouts of hallelujah. Now, times of, of, of those shouts of hallelujah in his life would often be times when things were going very well. So at that time, like his kids were walking with Jesus. He was the director of this program. He could often travel the world and uh, you know, do ministry at different places. Like things were going well. Well, then a number of years later, and if you remember the ice bucket challenge, he was diagnosed with ALS. And uh, ALS is uh, one of the most horrendous diseases that you can get because essentially, from what I understand, it takes away uh, the function of your muscular system. So slowly as you get this disease, you lose the ability to use your uh, body. You slowly lose the ability to walk. Then you lose the ability to use your hands. Then you lose the ability to speak to where you finally lose the ability to breathe. And uh, about five, or five years ago, he uh, succumbed to this disease and he passed into glory. But at his funeral, his son told me a story about uh, his last night being able to speak. He could feel just that the disease was overcoming him. And so they got into a truck and they went to this field. There's stars everywhere. And the last words that his son remember hearing him shout out were, Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Now here is my question for you this morning. Which shout of hallelujah was a more pure form of worship? The one when everything was going well 
or the ones when he was losing his ability to even speak and breathe? Which, which form of worship was a more pure, acceptable, even majestic form of worship? I would suggest to you, it was not the moments in his life when everything was going well. It was the moments in when he was like, and when, when, his, when in his life, he was in a, in a place of immense pain. And yet, even in being in a, in a place of immense pain, being able to cry out, God, you are still worthy. God, you are still worthy. What Psalm 88 helps us realize is that even in the place of suffering, there is a God worth worshiping. Even when he's not serving us, he is worth serving nonetheless. Even when destruction is in our lives, he, he still is a delight to us because that is what true, pure worship does. Pharisees just worship God because what God will do for them. The people of God worship God simply because he's worthy, and that's what we see happening, even in the pain that Haman is experiencing. One final observation as we go through seasons of darkness, as we walk with God in the midst of our darkness, that I want to always give us a reason, but he does, especially for where we stand in human history, he does always give us hope. He doesn't always give us a reason why we are in the season that we are in, but he always does give us hope. This psalm is so honest. It doesn't hold anything back. It sets your expectations as God's people that you will at times be in seasons of darkness that may last for a long time, that may be excruciating, that don't always have a clear bright light at the end of the tunnel, and then perhaps most difficult, come to us without any sort of explanation. You know, one thing that helps human beings endure hard times is sort of the why behind all of it. So perhaps, you know, mothers are able to endure the excruciating pain of labor because they understand the why. There's a baby on the other end of this thing. That's why they endure it. Men will uh, fight uh, in the midst of excruciating danger and the possibility for pain and death in war uh, because they understand the why. They're defending their country or their family uh, or, or their culture, so they understand the why. Understanding why something happens, at the very least, helps us endure it. It makes it more bearable. And so we, we tell ourselves, when it comes to God, if we just knew why, if he would just show us why, then that would make everything better. And so we come before God in the midst of darkness and simply ask that question, hey God, why? Why won't this depression go away? Why am I so alone? Why do you feel so distant in the midst of this? Why did we have to lose that baby? Why did you let him or her leave? Why did you let that to happen to me? And you know what we get? Sometimes no answer. Instead of a dark time, maybe the answer is obvious. You can see his hand working in all of it. But Psalm 88 doesn't show that. God doesn't step in immediately with Haman in this expression of difficulty and give him a, cl a clear plan. Oh, well, Haman, don't worry about it. There's all, it's all gonna work together for this reason. There's a purpose here. Let me show you what I'm doing in the midst of your pain. There's no answer from God. So it doesn't, God doesn't always give us the reason or the purpose for why we experience seasons of darkness. But what we do have is a sure hope. 
And that sure hope is demonstrated through a series of questions in verses 10 through 12. Haman asks God, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up and praise you? In your steadfast love, is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Are your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders shown in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Haman's question goes like this. He thinks of the absolute worst situation that a person could end up in. A situation beyond all hope, a situation that is utterly hopeless, a situation of death. And so his questions go like this. God, could you work out hope? Could you bring light even out of the darkest possible situation? And it seems, at least with this psalm, his immediate answer is at the very least a question mark, if not an outright no. Can you, God, bring hope out of the darkest possible situation? Haman has one perspective on that question, but you and I, living on the other side of the cross, have a very different answer to that question. Can God redeem even the worst possible moments? The answer for us is yes, he can. Does God work wonders even among the dead? You better believe it, because on Sunday morning, Jesus Christ burst forth from the grave. Do the departed rise up and praise you? The answer is yes. Jesus declared in the grave. Yes, even in the grave, God did not take his steadfast love off of his son. Are your wonders known in darkness? What is the darkest hour in human history? The moment when Jesus hung on a cross and the sky went dark and his life was taken from him. And yet, what is the song we sing about that most dark moment? Do you work wonders in darkness? Oh, the wonderful cross we proclaim. Is there righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Yes, Jesus was forsaken by all of his friends. He was forgotten by everyone, and yet he was not abandoned. So can God bring hope out of the worst possible situation? The answer for us on this side of the cross is yes. Yes, he can. The darkest hour of human history was when God's perfect son was murdered and put in a grave. And if God can bring light out of the darkness of the cross then you better believe he can do it anywhere. If he can bring light and hope out of what happened to Jesus and bring such glory out of that moment, what might he do in yours? God doesn't always give you a reason, but he does give you Jesus. And because you have Jesus, even without a reason, you still have hope. It is at the cross, through Jesus given to us, that we see God's heart, we see God's intentions, we see his desires for us. It is at the cross and through the subsequent resurrection that we realize that as God's people, he does, even in dark seasons, he does have good intentions for us. Because even while we were sinners, God gave his son for us. So someone once described seasons of darkness like this. Because we already know God's posture towards us, because we know his disposition towards us, when you cannot trace God's hand, trust his heart. 
when you cannot see what God is doing, you can't, God, how does all this work together? has already been demonstrated for you in sending forth his son to pay the penalty for your sins. So whatever you're going through right now, would you hear this morning that through Jesus Christ, you are not alone? Know that God has not forsaken you. Know that this season you're in will not last forever. And know that he will redeem it and use it even if you can't understand why today. In the meantime, instead of looking for all the answers, just look to Jesus. As we get ready to come to this table this morning, we are reminded that God can bring hope and light out of the worst situations. God can bring life even after death. That's what we tangibly celebrate every week as we participate in this meal. So as you get ready to come forward, first of all, come as you are. If you're in a dark season right now, you don't need to pretty yourself up. You come as you are to this table and you hear the words spoken over you that these elements represent. The bread represents that Jesus Christ, God's son, gave his body over for you. He experienced a darkness you and I will never, ever comprehend on that cross. Someone once put it like this. You may be suffering, but God will never ask you to suffer more for him than he already has for you. When we take that bread, we realize Jesus's body was given for us. When we take that cup, we realize Jesus's blood was poured out. That doesn't mean that he just died in like a sacrificial way for us. It's deeper than that. It is that, but it's deeper than that. His blood being poured out means that all of your sins are forgiven. So any difficulty that you have in your life right now, it could be there as consequences from bad decisions, but God will never punish you as his child. Why? Because he already punished his son in your place. All of your sins as you take the Lord's Supper. If you are here this morning and you've not put your faith in Jesus, you are sort of outside the discussion that we're having this morning. You've not come to a place in your life where you said, God, I see myself as a sinner. I see what you've done in sending Jesus for me. And I put my faith in that. I would kindly ask if that's the case that you do not come forward and participate in communion. But I will offer you this morning the hope of the gospel. What the past couple years and what the circumstances of our world are now showing us again and again that there's not a lot of hope for you in this world. I think we often have high expectations for all we're going to be able to accomplish as human beings. The world has shown us otherwise. This is a dark and hopeless world, and the darkest and most hopeless thing for us as individuals is our sin. The fact that our sin has brought about God's judgment in our lives, but you can be forgiven of all your sins this morning if you would turn away from trying to better yourself and simply collapse into Jesus. Say, Jesus, I cannot cover my sins. I cannot live good enough to be accepted by you. Would you take me as I am? Would you forgive me of all my sins? And would you make me yours? Would you make me one of your children? I believe that what you did on the cross was done for me. And I believe that a human being, a real man, Jesus Christ, rose from the grave on the third day so that somehow through him, I'm given new life. God, would you work that in this room this morning for that you might redeem their very soul by allowing that darkness to create a desperate cry for you? Lord, if it needs to happen, would you let loose some desperate cries for help and salvation in this room this morning? For others, Lord, they've put their faith in you in Psalm 88 
at least to some measure, describes their experience. Elements this. God, I pray that if they can't trace your hand as they take these elements this morning, they would be able to trust your heart. You love us. You have good intentions for us, and the best is yet to come. So would you give us hope that just like as Jesus was in the darkest possible situation and yet you brought him out of it, would you give us hope that you, are, you have us on the same trajectory, we're moving in the same direction. Lord, meet us now as we get ready to come to your table, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.